invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of James, uh, James chapter 2. James 2, we'll be in the middle of the chapter, starting there in verse 14. And tonight we come to uh, yet another rather challenging portion of Scripture, uh, but one that I believe uh, this is exactly what God in His providence has for us as a, as a ministry. You see, not only because it's His Word, but because tonight I believe we have a divine appointment as we open that Word and bring it to bear on our souls. Uh, familiar and often confused, yet powerful portion of God's Word. So turn, if you haven't already, to James 2, starting at verse 14, and we'll read through verse 19. James 2, starting at verse 14. James, by the Holy Spirit, writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, Without giving them the things needed for the body? What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe. And shudder. Father, we ask that by your spirit you would illumine our minds and work in our hearts tonight. Help us, Lord, to see and to examine our hearts for true and saving faith for that you would challenge our hearts to examine, uh, to see if we are in the faith. And to see that a true and living faith is one that works itself out in good works. Grateful for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. C-S-I. Crime Scene Investigation, a classic TV show that ran for, if you're purist like me, 16 seasons in its true and only Las Vegas form. The new one, still out uh, with the jury on, on that. And one of the most quintessential scenes in CSI that occurs almost every episode is when Sarah, or Grissom, or Warwick, or Nick visits the rather eclectic but brilliant Doc Robbins. Doc Robbins, the chief medical examiner of the Las Vegas crime lab. Uh, you can almost 
smell the formaldehyde as you go down into the depths of uh, the crime lab. The cold lockers on one side and the uh, meticulously organized precision instruments on the other. And I'll spare you the visual detail of the bodies in the room in the episode I'm thinking of. Uh, but the reason why this scene is seen over and over and over in CSI is because it is a crucial step in CSI's process of solving cases. And of course, since it's on the show, it must be what's true in real life. It's the autopsy. The autopsy. Doc Robbins examines the remains of the deceased for evidence or clues, for identification, uh, determining the approximate time of death, and most importantly, C-O-D, cause of death, uh, by determining the weapon, uh, or identifying the bullet, or examining trace levels of some unknown substance, or emptying the large intestines, or determining shoe size, the genius Doc Robbins determines and makes sense of what is there. It's an autopsy. And he has got to have one of the highest percentage of evidence-producing autopsies in the history of mankind. Because <laughs> he always comes up with something. Because, um, of course, if it's on the show, it must be like that in real life. Tonight's passage is, as morbid as, it, morbid as it sounds, an autopsy of sorts. It's a spiritual autopsy. It's an examination of a kind of faith that James says is dead. But this autopsy is different. We aren't trying to determine COD or catch a killer on the loose. This autopsy of a dead faith leads to another kind of examination. An examination of our own souls. It's what Paul says this way in 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Uh, Peter, in 2 Peter 1, says, Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Tonight's autopsy should lead us to this kind of sober examination, a sort of willing and thoughtful consideration of the status of our own souls. I guess if you prefer a less morbid analogy, this passage is it's a smog check. Uh, it could be an audit, if you like. It could be a, an annual inventory. You see, we need to see if everything is in working order. We need to see if everything is where it should be in our souls, in our lives. And if not, James warns us of this sort of dead faith. Dead faith. And so tonight, in order to examine ourselves, we need to look at what James says about dead faith, a uh, faith that cannot save. In order to see if we have true and living faith. And so uh, we'll see tonight in this passage 
three symptoms of dead faith, three signs of dead faith by which we must examine our own lives to see if we have true and living faith by God's grace. And so the first of those signs, the first of those symptoms is found in verse 14, the uselessness of dead faith. The uselessness of dead faith. Verse 14, we see that there is a kind of faith that is worthless. And that's a dead faith. Look at verse 14 again. James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James here points out the uselessness of dead faith, and he does so very simply with a rhetorical question. He says, what good is it? Answer, rhetorically, no good. This is a concept that James reiterates several times in this passage. Look at verse 17. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead and then in the, the passage next week, verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then again in verse 26, he calls that kind of faith dead. And so here in verse 14, this is sort of the thesis statement in a rhetorical question form for this entire section. Uh, James is saying, what good is it if someone says he has faith, speaks his faith, says, I have faith, but then he doesn't have works. And the resounding rhetorical answer through and through is, it is no good. There is no good in that. Faith without works is dead. It's worthless. It's useless. You see, in this spiritual autopsy, this faith that this person has is first here pronounced dead. It's dead at the scene. In some way, James could mean here when he says it's useless or worthless that it's ineffective or unfruitful. We'll see that a little bit later in verses 15 and 16. Uh, you see a person with this kind of faith is worthless and useless in regards to caring for others is what James will say. But here in verse 14, consider carefully what James is saying. Well, why is this faith no good? Look at the end of the verse in verse 14. Can that faith save him? He's asking, can that kind of faith, a so-called faith that does not produce works, can that kind of faith be salvific? Is this the kind of faith that God and the writers of Scripture in the rest of the Bible say is the kind of faith that saves. And James here is saying strongly and rhetorically, no. Faith without works, faith that does not produce works, is useless. It's worthless in terms of specifically any kind of saving power. Faith without works is dead. We, are, as Christians, are alive in Christ. And James is saying, if you have 
some kind of faith, you have a claim to faith, but you do not show it with your life, your faith is not alive, but dead. Now to be clear, James is not saying that salvation in any way is accomplished by works. It's not in, earned or enlivened in any way as a result of works. He's not saying that. True saving faith, he's saying, is evidenced by works. And it's this passage that some have taken and mistakenly pitted James against the Apostle Paul, saying that Paul preached a grace alone definition of faith, which he does. Listen to Romans 3. For we hold, Paul writes, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So Paul's very clear that a person is justified, made right with God, by faith alone, he says, apart from works of the law. So some have said, well, that's Paul. Here James is saying some sort of works-based salvation, that faith alone isn't enough. It's, it's insufficient to save. Uh, but that is not at all what James is doing here. You see, while Paul indeed does focus his teaching on salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, Paul's pastoral concern, his intent in writing, his reason for writing, more often than not, to the churches that he wrote to, was to address a form of legalism, churches, full of Judaizers, people who were false teachers, teaching and commanding that the works of the law were necessary for salvation. And so he says, even in Galatians, if anyone comes to you declaring some other sort of salvation, let him be anathema. Paul's concern in his writings, more often than not, is a concern of legalism. Achieving salvation by obeying the works of the law, by, by, by living out the works of the law to achieve salvation. James, on the other hand, has a completely different pastoral concern. He is writing to embattled Jewish believers, uh, one whose first century existence, uh, in, entire existence before Christ, uh, was a life of tiresome legalism and law-abiding Judaism, and now that they've heard the gospel of saving grace on this side of the cross, they've swung the pendulum the other way into what we call antinomianism, anti-namas, law, a life of freedom in Christ, but they've taken a little too far. And so James is addressing them, showing them, as we've seen this entire past quarter and a half, that faith is lived out. It's a faith to be lived out. But these believers have detached their faith from their way of living. And that's what James is addressing here. And so James, elder of the church in Jerusalem, pens this letter urging these believers toward living an active and engaged faith, faith that, faith that is integrated with life, 
faith from which flows loving, mercy-driven, grateful obedience. It's a faith lived out. It's a faith that finds joy in trials. It's a faith that faces temptation with an understanding of its own culpability and its own weakness. It's a faith that traces the good hand of God in all good gifts, and the best of which is the new birth. It's a faith that receives with meekness the implanted word and seeks to do and to obey God's word day in and day out. It's a faith that shows no partiality, but instead shows mercy toward others. James, so far, the book has been jam-packed with this kind of truth, and it's been right under our nose the whole time. That true saving faith is fruit-producing. It's actually working. It's responsive to what's right in front of it. It's a living faith. And so James is not contradicting Paul at all, but addressing simply a different pastoral concern. Paul addresses people who want to take their faith and make it earned by themselves. And James is addressing people who don't have an understanding that their faith not only has to do with their lives, it's integral. James, you could say, has a different reason for writing, so he writes differently. Paul is antagonizing the works of the law in respect to their role in achieving salvation, but James is encouraging a different kind of works that comes after salvation. That has nothing to do with achieving salvation. It's after the new birth. It's a result of the new birth. And he hones in here and, tells, and shows us that the evidence that truly of God's own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. And we live in that life fruitfully. Our pastor, Pastor John, says of this passage, he says, they, speaking of James and Paul, they are not standing face to face confronting each other, but are standing back to back fighting two common enemies. Paul opposes works righteousness and legalism. James opposes easy believism. Turn over to Ephesians 2, one of our most beloved passages of Scripture as Christians. And I want you to see something in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. I feel like half of us don't even need to turn to Scripture because we know it. It's our testimony. It's our lives. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. It's by grace and by grace alone that you and I have been saved. God has designed salvation that is not a result of works so that the purpose of us knowing that we cannot boast before an almighty God who has given us a plan of redemption. It's by grace alone. But look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Do you see, I think sometimes we are so afraid of, we are so mad at legalism that we think we see in our ministry, that we forget the way that God has designed not only salvation, but beforehand he has prepared for us to be created in Christ Jesus for good works. We get so mad at each other that Christians should look a certain way. And I get it, there's cultural things to weed out. But we ought to look different indeed. We are created in Christ Jesus for this, for good works. And it's not just James saying it, Paul's saying it here in Ephesians 2. Turn back to James. And so we see in this passage, in James here in the middle of this letter, James wants to show us, for sort of rhetorical effect, what dead faith, the opposite, looks like. Faith that isn't true. Faith that cannot save. This is what Titus 1.16 describes. They profess to know God. I have faith, they say. But they deny him by their works. It goes on to describe these people. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. In other words, worthless or useless. It's a kind of faith that only gives credence to belief. It says it believes, but in reality, it is not the kind of authentic, saving faith that the Bible speaks of. It's not the kind of true faith that Jesus or Paul or James or Peter or John or the author of Hebrews writes about. They all speak of this. You see, the faith the Bible speaks of is a faith that loves Jesus and obeys his commandments, John 14, 15. It's a faith that is exemplified by Jesus himself in his obedience to the cross. 1 Peter 2, Hebrews 5, Philippians 2, show Jesus' obedience and love for his Father. The kind of faith the Bible describes is described by Paul in Romans as the obedience of of faith in Romans 1 and Romans 16. It's first John's test that if we have come to know him, what we obey his commandments. It's the faith that Peter describes of God's obedient children. It's what Hebrews 11 describes, that by faith, person after person after person in Scripture, all those listed were tested and they obeyed. And on and on and on in Scripture passage, we see a faith that speaks of a redeemed love for God, but also in obedience to His work. And so this is true faith. It demonstrates itself in your life. It's faith that exhibits proof that it has been transformed. That true faith is transformed and trusting devotion to Jesus. Uh, but it's belief that goes beyond mere profession. It goes beyond just a claim that I believe. Now truly, certainly, faith starts there. It begins with profession. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, 
you will be saved. That's all it takes. But true faith, as it continues, as it endures, as it faces the joys and trials in life, it authentically uh, produces fruit. It works. True faith works. And in this passage, on the other hand, we see a faith that does not produce works. It proves itself to not be alive and true, to be dead, useless, worthless. We live in a society that likes to tell us that you are what you want to be. You are what you say you are. You create your own reality. You do you. Some people say you, you are what you eat. Or maybe the entrepreneurial types will tell you that you are what you settle for. Or you are how much time you put in. Or you are how much you invest in the right thing. James, by the Holy Spirit, tells us here, you are what you do, not what you say you do. Your life will show that you have true saving faith, if it is indeed true saving faith. And so we see in this autopsy, this spiritual autopsy, the first mark is the worthlessness or the uselessness of dead faith. Uh, secondly, we see in this passage the mercilessness of dead faith, the mercilessness of dead faith. In verses 15 to 17, James points out the lovelessness of dead faith, the lack of love, the lack of mercy. You see, dead faith shows no mercy because it has not experienced God's mercy. Look at verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? James repeats his rhetorical question there at the end of verse 16. And James, as you can see, just by this example, is rolling with sort of the same theme he has, been since the end of chapter 1, and through the study of partiality as well the past few weeks. It's this picture of a poor, needy brother now, or sister, a fellow member of the church, the community faith. And this person is like those we've seen throughout James, chapter 1, verse 9, the lowly brother, or chapter 1, verse 27, the orphan, or widow, and in the beginning of chapter 2, the one with shabby clothing, if you remember him, or described as the poor in the world. This person in chapter 2, verse 15, is poorly clothed. Literally, the word is naked or uncovered. The point is, this person is lacking proper clothing for survival. That's how hard they have it. They can't sleep at night because they're not covered. And if that weren't enough, this person is also lacking in daily food. You see, they are day-to-day -day in terms of sustenance. 
They're unsure of where the next meal might come from. James says, if you tell this brother or sister who's, who's cold at night and starving, you tell them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and you don't give them actual clothing or food, what good is that? Again, almost a rhetorical device. This person is in desperate physical need, and whether it's your favorite, ugly, but really comfortable sweater, or your least favorite, really good looking, but really itchy and uncomfortable sweater, this person could use something, just something to keep warm at night. And this person is literally starving, like not in your like normal, like today kind of hangry kind of way, but, but like actually, it's, it could be ramen or like your leftover sugar fish, like, just give this person something. They just need to eat. But you, instead of actually helping this shivering, quaking from hunger sort of person, you tell them, you look them in the eye and you say, go in peace, blessings, be warmed and filled. I wish you the best. James is saying, again, rhetorically, what good is that? What kind of faith does that? And he's saying, in your dead faith, in your so-called faith, in which you say, verse 14, I have faith. You also say to your needy friend, go in peace. Uh, hope it goes well. Be warmed and filled. Uh, but I won't give you anything to be warmed by or filled with. Uh, what good is that? How does it help your brother or your sister? James is asking. This is the kind of faith that is dead faith. It gives credence with its lips, but there's nothing to show for it. There's one event that I'm well aware is held in higher honor than all others at GOC. Broa. Sounds kind of like an app that you download to show you uh, tips for bros. You know, like gym tips or how to have better manners or how to be a bro. Bro app. Download the bro app today. Bro app, if you're, Lord bless your soul, on GOC culture, it is brother's appreciation. Nothing, nothing, nothing that cool. Just bro app, just shorten it, right? Bro-up is a big deal. I think there's some coming up, right? Now there are. Sometimes there's a performance, like a song or a poem. Some of them, sysaps especially, have really well-prepared food. There's sometimes a game. But usually just a chill time, right? Bro-up. Well, what if, instead of steak and eggs, like all burlaps should have if they're before noon. <laughs> the girls decided, let's not serve these dudes steak and eggs. Uh, you know, let's not even serve these brothers tea sandwiches, like something we would like, like cucumber cream cheese kind of thing, or like egg salad. 
Like, let's not even get these bros honey lavender scones or like hibiscus tea. Like, we've got a better idea. So the day comes, bro out comes, right? And the dudes walk in on time somehow for some of their lives. And the girls say, you know what? We appreciate you so much. We appreciate all the ways that you've served this year. Uh, all of this, our appreciation of you, we've prepared. It's built on our common love for Jesus. Here's an empty plate. Nothing. Now, I don't want to build unrealistic expectations for bro out. So, ladies, rich crackers, and we're good, all right? You see, in a much more serious light, your brother or your sister is in need. Not just to be appreciated, but literally in physical need, in danger of not making it the next day. And James is saying, if you have been shown mercy by God, that you will show mercy to others, and especially to those who desperately need it. But he's also saying, if you don't, your, your faith is kind of like the mercy that you're showing. Absent, empty, cold, non-existent. It's reflective, not of God's saving, mercy, and grace, and abundant provision and salvation, but of merciless, loveless, dead, faith. This kind of empty worded, empty handed kind of words of sort of pseudo blessing. Go in peace. They come from a heart that is empty of real faith. This is the truth that we saw last week in a different lens in verse 13. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Why? Because if you show no mercy toward others, you may have never experienced the mercy of God yourself. So here in verses 15 and 16, we see this dead faith, this merciless, loveless kind of so-called faith. It lacks the compassion of Jesus. It is devoid of Christian kindness. It does not show the mercy seen in the gospel. And James asks again, what good is that? What kind of faith is that? Look at his answer in verse 17. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, and I would add works of mercy, works of love, he says it's dead. It's dead. The illustration here is powerful because it's, it's one that James is using. It's a demonstration of something that dead faith might actually do. It might actually do this. Is it, it sounds ridiculous, but it, it, as it fabricates this facade, this, this sort of fake faith, someone with dead faith might actually say this to someone in need. Go in peace. Go get a job. But it's more powerful because it's also simply just a parallel. It's an analogy for what dead faith does. Dead faith makes an audacious claim, and yet there's nothing to show for it. 
dead faith says, go in peace. I, I care for you. Yet there's no evidence of it. Dead faith says, I have faith. And yet there is no evidence for it. It's all just empty words, false claims. At best, it's self-deceived. At worst, it's deluded and bold faith in its life. This is exactly what James is talking about in chapter 1, verse 22. Those who hear the word of God only and don't follow through and actually obey or do God's word, they are deceiving themselves. Now, I don't think James' illustration is by accident. You see, dead, useless faith that is cold and merciless and loveless is a warning sign to us. And so we ought to examine our hearts, whether we consistently are merciless toward others, locking in love for others, ungracious and, un and impatient with others. That might be a sign of a dead or a dying faith. Do we fail to extend grace for those who need it? Do we close our hearts to other people? It's a warning sign, James says. Maybe we pridefully sort of hold our knowledge or our godliness or our status in some way over uh, other people. Or the fact that we think faster than people, have better wits, or are more sociable. Beware the lovelessness of dead faith. I think our friends who are newer to GOC may, as they step into our ministry and begin to get to know it, be intimidated by the sort of pressure that's put on people to conform or to join this or do that or uh, be a part of this. And it's just so overwhelming. There's so much to do or there's people that you're supposed to be like. And it's never said, but it's understood, I think, that way. So much pressure, culturally speaking. And I only want to address it because it sort of absolves it. I would put this pressure on you. The only thing that you, if you were new to GOC, and, and you're in this sort of disillusionment of, I love the people, love being here, but I just don't know why I'm supposed to be a certain way. I'm just not that. I want to put this pressure on you. The only thing, and literally I mean the only thing that you should feel pressure about is that you love Jesus and that you focus on your love for others. Return pressure and expectations with grace and kindness and love and humility and understanding. The only thing I want you to do is not to be like other people, uh, but to focus on your love. You see, if you're new and you have a living faith, you will extend mercy like James is saying here. You'll show love. You'll be patient, even when others around you might not be. First John chapter 4. Just listen. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves 
has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And John has the same point as James here when he says at the end of that, that verse, no one has ever seen God. And so if we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. You see, if we have true saving faith, we will love others. We will extend mercy to others. But a dead faith, a worthless faith, is merciless. It's loveless. And that's what James shows us here in this text. The third mark and the final mark of the sign of dead faith is found in verses 18 and 19. The orthodoxy of dead faith. The orthodoxy of dead faith. James brings us a step further when we thought that was already enough classic James, and he shows us just how right dead faith can be until it's wrong. Dead faith can say all the right things and even believe all the right things and still be unregenerate. Look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe, and shudder. Here James anticipates an objection someone from his audience might bring forward. This is akin to verse 14. Someone may say, this is a common formula in Greek writing and philosophy. Now, it's debated among commentators the precise logic of what is being said here. Is it someone objecting that whole line, saying, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Or is it someone objecting, like it's sort of shown by punctuation in the ESV, just that first line, you have faith and I have works. And you could read on and on and on, and there's a myriad of interpretations about what exactly the logic of this verse is. But I think, and most of the commentators come to this conclusion, that really the main point is the same. And I think the right way to understand this objection is to just take the first line as the objection. So you have someone saying, you have faith and I have work. Is this someone who understands the concepts of faith and works, not as two different ways of getting saved, but as two different concepts, almost like different attributes that different Christians can have, kind of like spiritual gifts or strengths and weaknesses. So he's good at it, I'm not, but actually I can, I can do this instead. 
things that one Christian can have and another can have the other. So this is that someone's logic. You have the gift of faith. You have faith. You have the above average ability to exercise that faith in trials or in difficulties. And I, I have the standout sort of ability to do works. I care for the poor and the needy, or I use my resources to show mercy on my neighbor. And so to answer this objection, this view that faith and works can be held separately, even by two different people, James says this. He says, show me your faith apart from your works. If you have faith, show me it then. And James says, well, by my logic, though, I will show you my faith by my works, or through my works, via my works. It's sort of a challenge that you show me you have faith, somehow, go ahead, apart from your works. And I'll show you by my works that I indeed do have faith, in fact, saving faith, living faith. Because you'll be able to see it by my works. And so again, James is sort of being rhetorical, but in a different sense. Not with a question, but with a challenge. You can't show faith apart from what it does, he's saying. You can't show faith apart from the works that it actually performs. Now to be clear, James is not saying, again, that faith is in some way earned or formed by works. This is not a works righteousness sort of deal here. But it's faith evidenced by works. As James saying, I have been saved by grace, created in Christ Jesus for this. And I'll show it to you. In fact, James goes further in his logic in verse 19. You believe that God is one and you do well. Even demons believe and they shudder. This is a reference to the Declaration of Faith in Deuteronomy 6. It's a passage we looked at last week that had the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your soul, and with all your might. Well, right before that, in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so this statement Yahweh is one, the Lord is one, God is one, became, over the years, a declaration of faith, a confession for the people of Israel. And so James here is identifying that claim, and he's saying, you believe even that God is one. You declare your faith. He pats you on the back. You do well. Sure. Fine. Granted. But just because you're in the community of people whose confession is God is one, and you yourself confess God is one, James is asking, is that what makes you saved? You know, maybe you've been in GOC for some time, and you, uh, you profess faith. You say, in a sense, God is one. Jesus is Lord. Is that what makes you saved? Can you, like verse 14, say that you have faith and that be enough? My concern tonight as I look around the room, 
is not that you behave a certain way, that you sort of start looking like you're saved, or that you talk like you're saved, or you, that you act like it, like a good little GOCer. My concern for you is that it's so easy to blend into a group like this. And for you to profess faith, for you to say, God is one. And even believe all the right things at a factual level. And to say all the right things, even in small group. But it's all a show. It's a facade. Been in college ministry long enough. I'm not even going to tell you how many years, because I'm old. To see painfully dear friends, mentors even, small group leaders. And it hurts to say it, but even leaders and under-shepherds walk away from the faith. But the truth is, through the lens of this passage, is that their faith was, was dead. Their faith was orthodox, and declared and professed, but apparently they did not endure in the kind of good works that God commands here in this passage. So James is showing us that, that dead faith can even say that it has faith, and it can even declare that it believes, but it must show itself by the way that it lives. And so this is a, a stern and serious moment. It's a, it's a warning to all of our souls to examine where we are. It's not enough to just simply declare that you have faith. Examine yourself as to whether you truly believe and whether it shows in your life. Because James breaks through this sort of defense mechanism that is a profession of faith. This is dead faith's claim to orthodoxy. God is one. But James says here, even the demons believe, and they shudder over the thing. Even the underlings of Satan, the, Satan himself, believe in God. Even they know the reality of Jesus. That they believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, they're at war with him. Of course they believe in his existence. And so even if demons believe that God is one, James is saying, yet they remain in rebellion against God, how does you professing to believe God is one? How does that ensure that you have true saving faith? Rhetorical again. James is saying it doesn't ensure anything. True faith it must not just claim to have faith. It must not just give intellectual assent to all the right things. It must live out a life of obedience, submission to our Lord Jesus, a life surrendered to the power of the Holy Spirit. So how can you tell? How can you tell the difference between mere, mere intellectual belief in what is true and right? in true belief in what is true and right. James is saying here, both believe the truth. Both 
may even know their Bibles really well. Both may know the finer points of theology. But dead, useless, loveless faith prides itself in its knowledge. It puffs itself up. Dead, orthodox faith loves its own logic. It intellectualizes better than anybody it knows. It barely needs wisdom or counsel. It sees no value in others' opinion or input or experience, let alone criticism or feedback. But authentic, saving faith also believes the truth, but it turns the corner. The truth it actually believes affects the heart. It enlivens the soul. It springs into action. The truth humbles this kind of true faith. And it helps grow. Maybe not always smarter, but deeper and wiser and warmer. And it doesn't stay stuck in the head. This kind of true and living faith has hands and feet. It lives out what it believes. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' magnum opus, interpretation of the law of God, Jesus, the great preacher, gives an illustration, a word picture, as he commands all who hear his sermon to do the things he's just taught. And unsurprisingly, I believe this is exactly what echoed in James's mind as he wrote the passage we've studied tonight. Just listen to Jesus' words. This is at the end of his sermon. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. Grace on campus, let us be like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rock of a living faith, a productive faith that hears the words of our Savior and does them. The heart of the Sermon on the Mount is the very heart of our passage tonight. And it's at the core of this book. True faith is an endeavor lived out. Dead faith hears the word of God and bottles it up. But true faith hears the word of God and does it. Authentic saving faith lives and breathes and is useful for the kingdom. It shows mercy and kindness and love toward others. And all of that wrapped up in this, it translates the knowledge of God into action. True faith works. Let's ask God's help to have faith that lives what it believes.
God, thank you for your word. Because it is so clear, Lord, that we are saved by grace and by grace alone. Through the blood of the Son, Jesus. But this passage, Lord, challenges us to have hearts warmed to obey your law. To see you as a generous and a wise master. To obey you because we love you. Not out of duty or obligation or thinking that we can earn anything with you. But out of gratitude and worship to a wonderful and merciful Savior. We're grateful, Lord, for this truth because it challenges our souls. Help us, Lord, to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. We thank you for your word. We pray that you work by it even tonight through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.